During his first presidential campaign, George W. Bush developed a platform around something he called compassionate conservatism to deepen and broaden the human bonds within our nation. And in his first inaugural address, he said, civility is the determined choice of trust over cynicism, community over chaos. Let me say that again. Civility is the determined choice of trust over cynicism, community over chaos. A few years prior to that, Hillary Clinton wrote how it takes a village to nurture healthy children. And years before that, Martin Luther King Jr. intoned in dramatic oratory, I have a dream, how people of every color and economy can walk hand in hand into a bright future unblemished by prejudice, sustained by equal opportunity. Wow. Does that ever seem like a long time ago in a land far, far away? 20 years, a lifetime ago. Prior to 9-11, our nation evinced an aspirational focus on building the bonds of community across the political spectrum. Back then, everyone was talking about community. Theologians, politicians, sociologists, psychologists, journalists, it was even big in business. Now by community, I'm referring to the interconnecting web of meaningful relationships that shape our lives in healthful, constructive, and definitive ways. When I say it was a hot topic, that's because most everyone thought it was missing, but held the key to a hopeful future. Then after an initial galvanizing sense of community post 9-11, that conversation collapsed in the fog of fear, war, and fracturing social cohesion and loss of commitment to the common good, the linchpin for establishing healthy community. Where are those places, people, relationships to which you feel you truly belong, that dignify your life, that help define your identity? Where is that deep wellspring of relatedness from which you derive the definition of yourself? In my experience, many people report that community of this sort is a deeply felt need or desire in their lives, but disturbingly elusive. More so now than ever before. At its core, this is a crisis of spirit. I say this because community is dependent upon commitment to something larger than self or bald self-interest. Consider, within a healthy family, members have a bedrock sense of and commitment to the familyness, the idea that the sum of the members is larger than an individual, and this group has a life that imparts to the members an understanding of who they are. Within a healthy family, each person paradoxically develops a healthy sense of their individual identity. A powerful motivator in the popularity of genealogical studies is our desire to understand who we are by learning about the community of our ancestors. Have you ever watched the PBS show Finding Your Roots? For eight years, it has pierced American myths about the purity of race, ethnicity, and other diversities. Henry Louis Gates researches the history and genetic code of individuals who are often overwhelmed by the revelation 
that they are not who they thought they were. During an early season, the actor Ben Affleck generated a mini brouhaha by requesting that PBS edit out an uncomfortable discovery. His ancestry included slave owners. And why do adoptees often want to know about their biological parents if not to know themselves more fully? Humans find their place in the world within a network of relationships. I remember very well that as a young man in my 20s trying to figure out just who the hell I was, <laughs> my then therapist, M. Scott Peck, author of The Road Less Traveled, offered this bit of homely wisdom. Steve, he intoned, we're born into a particular biological family and then spend the rest of our lives discovering our real extended family and ultimately who we are. Yet for all of this desire for community, many seem strangely ill-equipped to find it. And that's because healthy community depends upon commitment to something larger than self. It requires a kind of selflessness, as in it is in losing your life that you find your life. Our culture promotes a radically atomized individualism with a focus on the exclusive goal of sating individual desire. This is a spiritual matter, a matter of idolatry specifically, as in considering the question, who or what do we worship really? Megan McKenna tells the story about a time there was a woman who wanted peace in the world and peace in her heart and all sorts of good things, but she was very frustrated. She absorbed a lot of media and got depressed. And as she thought about it, her own life didn't seem terribly fulfilling either. Alternately bored one day and obsessively engaged another, she realized she lacked a coherent purpose. She felt, what was the right word? Empty. So one day she decided to go shopping and she went into a mall and picked a store at random. But as she walked in, she was surprised to see Jesus behind the counter. She knew it was Jesus because he looked just like all of the images she'd seen. Excuse me, are you Jesus? I am. Do you work here? No, Jesus said, I own the store. Oh, well, what do you sell in here? Oh, just about anything. Anything? Yeah, anything you want. What do you want? She said, I don't know. Well, said Jesus, feel free, walk up and down the aisles, make a list, see what it is you want, and then come back and we'll see what we can do for you. Well, she did just that, walked up and down the aisles, making note of everything she saw. There was peace on earth, no more war, no hunger or poverty, peace in families, harmony, even a meaningful life, she wrote furiously. By the time she got back to the counter, she had a long list. Jesus took the list, skimmed through it, looked up at her and smiled, no problem. And then he bent down behind the counter and picked out all sorts of things, stood up and laid out the packets. She asked, what are these? Jesus replied, seed packets. This is a catalog store. 
She said, you mean I don't get the finished product? No, this is a place of dreams. You come and see what it looks like and I give you the seeds. You plant the seeds, you go home and nurture them. Find others who will do the same. And together you help the seeds grow and then eventually, and in truth it might take a very long while, you and your friends, along with others you don't even know, reap the benefits. Oh, she said, and quickly left the store without buying anything, slipping into a doorway across the aisle for a double chai latte as she buried herself in her cell phone. Contrast that parable with the famous image Paul gives us in Corinthians where the individual is likened to a body part of a single organism. Paul's vision holds that any person's true identity and purpose is intrinsically connected with the identity and purpose of others. The whole is greater than any member. The member serves the common good. In turn, the individual member finds his or her place and purpose in relation to the whole. Basic stuff, isn't it? Any meaningful, worthwhile agency of the common good we have inherited is the result of the commitment of others to something larger than themselves. It doesn't matter whether we're speaking of our immediate family, constitutional democracy, or the Christian church, including Christ Church. At Christ Church, you'll hear that it's not possible to worship God and the self simultaneously. Paul says the church is the equivalent of the body of Christ. Christ is the head and we individual members derive our place and purpose in relation to the whole. Now Paul is driving home a point about comparison and pride that no one member should feel superior to another. But note that he appeals to this most fundamental understanding of our existence, that our true place and purpose is found in healthy, committed relationship to others. Healthy community cannot be gained through individual effort per se. It comes as a gift realized in committed relationship to people and purposes larger than self. The Christ Church mission helps us out here. We seek to love God above all things and our neighbor as ourselves. That cuts to the heart of the matter. Commit yourself to that, and you will come to know who you are for certain.